I want to share a good word with you today. The good word is that God is love and that God loves you. We have a tendency for our minds to get distracted so many things. It's normal. It's natural in the world in which you and I live. But today I want us to concentrate upon the person of Jesus Christ. I think we need to refocus on him. Not only daily, but sometimes in our worship service to concentrate exclusively upon his person, upon him. Remembrance is the wellspring of virtue, but forgetfulness is the fountain of vice. Jesus told us to remember, to remember. We have a tendency to forget. The little book of Jude, not a book, really just a couple of pages, it's a short letter. Doesn't even have but one chapter, 25 verses. The 17th verse reads, but you, beloved, you, beloved church, you who love the Lord, remember the words that were spoken of the apostles, by the apostles of our Lord Jesus. Remember him. I want us to concentrate upon him. You have a mental picture of him in your mind, and that's fine. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's true that every one of us finds our ideal in him. Everyone finds their ideal in Jesus. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the astronomer, he's the bright and morning star. To the botanist, he's the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. To the carpenter, he's the door of heaven. To the hungry, he's the bread of life. To the thirsty, he's the water of life. To the lost. He's the Savior. The angel announced, call him Jesus before he was born. Call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. We're going to call upon Jesus for he is the one who saves us from our sins. Now that word sin is well known. It's a short word with a lot of long meanings. When the word is mentioned, and I'll only say a, word, a brief word about this. When the very word is mentioned, we think of those gross transgressions, murder, adultery, stealing, drunkenness. Those gross sins. And make no mistake about it, they are gross and they are destructive. But that's not the only sin. There are sins of attitude that the Bible speaks as much about as it does the other. Sins of attitude. Self-righteousness. Judgmentalism. Greed. Criticism. Backbiting. Those are also sins. 
There's another category of social sins. Discrimination. Racial discrimination. Discrimination between men and women at the point of jobs and pay for the same job. Discrimination against the uneducated. Discrimination on the basis of economics. The clothes a person wears, the car they drive, the neighborhood they live in. Those kind of social sins, attitudinal sins. And then there's another category that we overlook often. And those are the sins of neglect. Not sins of the things we do, but the things we don't do. The good word we don't speak. The word of encouragement we don't share. The pat on the back we don't give. The note we don't write. The call we don't make. One of the major facets of one of Jesus' greatest story, the Good Samaritan, has to do with religious people neglecting hurting people. Here was this beaten, broken man lying beside the road. He'd been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And here come two religious folks who've been to church, a priest and a Levite. And what do they do? They pass by on the other side of the street. Ignoring the needs of the hurting. Ignoring the needs of the wounded. For the church and for people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ to ever ignore human need anywhere in anybody. The Bible says, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. The things we don't do are sins. So sin comes in many shapes and sizes and forms and categories and applications. That's why the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For we've all sinned. As I've often said, we've not all sinned alike, but all alike have sinned. So we don't need to feel pious and self-righteous and sort of Mr. and Mrs. better than everybody else. We're not. The big difference is being forgiven and not forgiven. That's the big difference. And the big difference in that comes by knowing Jesus who has come to forgive us and to save us from our sins. So I want to talk about him for a minute. The last week or ten days I've been thinking about this sermon and what I would preach and And a lot of things went through my mind and I was told a lot of things, suggested a lot of things to preach. I said, no, I want to focus on the man, the man, Christ Jesus. We need to refocus on him. My friend, we're not going to be saved by politicians, however, however effective they may be. We're not going to be redeemed by political parties however stringent they may be, we need to focus on the man. The man. You know about his birth. It was so unlikely. Who would have expected God to be born in a barn? Who would have expected the one we've been talking about, the creation and the creator, who would have expected the creator to come into his own world through the back door 
on a back alley in a barn. I would have expected him to have been born in Caesar's palace in Rome or maybe to have lived for a while in a centurion's estate outside Capernaum or dwell maybe in uh, Herod's palace in Jerusalem. And maybe just as a summer job worked as a carpenter in a carpenter shop and then maybe on a vacation or on a tour seen what people do who have to live in barns. But now Jesus... He came all the way from the stars to the stable in one step. He left the throne to come to the manger that we might rise from the stables of life to the throne of God. The son of God became son of man that sons of men might become sons of God. What a man. What a baby. What a baby. You ever thought about the fact that Jesus was older than his mother? That's true. Jesus was older than his mother. He said, before Abraham was, I am. John tells us that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He was the agent of all creation. Jesus was older than his mother. He didn't look like his mother. His mother looked like him. Son of God, but not the descendant of God. He does not come after God. He is God. He is one with the Father in this mysterious incarnation that our minds cannot fathom, but the divine mind has created. Well, he didn't stay a baby. He grew up, became a little boy, went to school, went to school in Nazareth, went to Hebrew school, went to school at the synagogue, and he played games, worked in a carpenter's shop with his father. He became a man. What kind of a man was he? Well, all of us have both a mental and physical and and spiritual picture of him. Uh, We do not have any physical description of him given in the New Testament. And I think that's providential because if we knew exactly what he looked like, all of us would try to look like him on the outside. And what he wants us to do is to look like him and be like him on the inside. So we don't have a physical description given. We learn a lot about his qualities and his character and his attributes and his spirit and his relationship to people. But I personally, now you have a different idea and that's fine. You don't have to agree with me on everything I say to be a member or active in the life of this church. In fact, if you agree with me on everything, something is wrong with one of us. You don't have to murder your mind to be a Christian and you don't have to murder your mind to be a member of this church. So anyway, you can have a different opinion and that's fine. I have the feeling of Jesus was a man. I mean, a full-blown physical man. I believe he was physically superior to anybody in his day. I believe he could work longer, walk further than anybody in his day. I agree with Bruce Barton personally, that I agree with him, that most of the pictures ever drawn grossly misrepresent Jesus. Most of them make him out of weak, effeminate, sissy kind of character that looks like he's about to die from malnutrition any moment. And I don't believe he looked like that at all. If you do, that's fine. If you believe he looked like El Greco's interpretations of Jesus, that's fine. I don't believe he looked like that. I like the picture more recently painted of the laughing Christ with his head back and his mouth open laughing. He said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. I believe Jesus was a man, a man's man from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. 
You'll never convince me that a drinking, cursing sailor, and I know about sailors. I was in the Marine Corps. I know about those sailors. They need help, friends. Uh, A drinking, cursing sailor by the name of Simon Peter would have followed some little namby pamby milk string for spine milk toast non-entity. I can't imagine it. Nor can I imagine James and John, whom Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder. These were 15, 16, 17-year-old boys that were just full of all kinds of vitality and energy. Can you believe they'd follow someone that drug around all the time, walking on his bottom lip, complaining about what was going on in the world, and have a sour look on everybody and to everybody, and a critical word about everybody? They wouldn't have looked at him for a minute. They were attracted to him because he was alive, fully alive. And I believe when he walked down the streets, people looked at him because there was something magnetic about this physical embodiment of compassion and love. He was some man. He uh, he liked to go to parties. Never turned down an invitation to one. Read the New Testament. Read the four Gospels. Jesus never turned down an invitation to a meal. Does that make you Baptists feel better? <laughs> Never turn down an invitation to a meal. And, and most of the invitations came from the irreligious crowd of the day. But he went and he had a delightful time. And no one ever felt his presence to be a cloud upon the company. No one ever laughed any less because Jesus was there. I know we preachers, we have a terrible reputation. You know, people having a good time and we walk into the 19th hole or walk into a a locker room somewhere or walk into a restaurant and everybody's laughing and having a good time. Here comes a preacher, get quiet. (laughs) Hello, uh, good afternoon, Reverend. (laughs) We were just sitting here worrying about world conditions when you walked in. Jesus is not the world's great wet blanket. He didn't come to frost the earth and cut the flowers and turn out the lights and stop the song. He came to give us a song. Came to give us life. What have we done to this man? What have we done? Oh, in our desire to try to be good and to be like him and to do what he wants us to do, sometimes we get so self-conscious that we become pious prigs. We become elder brothers. God save us from that. We've all been to the far country. Some further than others, but all have been to the far country. May have been a block, may have been a mile, may have been 20 miles, but we've all come back. We've all come back. Well, the man, people liked him. Even his enemies liked him. They just couldn't turn loose of him. He just kept upsetting them, but they were magnetically attracted to him. They just couldn't turn him loose. They'd ask him questions. They'd try to argue with him. Even the people who turned eventually crucified him, liked him. Something about him just got under their skin. The reason they didn't like him was because he was trying to move them out of their prejudices and their narrowness and their exclusiveness. He was kicking some of their sacred cows They were threatened by that. Have you ever stopped to realize and think that Jesus was not crucified by a gang of hoodlums? 
He was crucified by some of the most ethical people that ever lived, some of the most religious people that ever lived. Boy, they kept the law. They did all of that. The most ethical religion next to Christianity and prior to Christianity, precursor to Christianity, beginner of Christianity, was Judaism. He was killed by religious leaders, by, by religion at its best, and by the state at its best. No state has equal the efficiency of the Roman Empire. And they joined unholy hands to crucify Jesus. Why? Because he came to establish a whole new kind of kingdom. A kingdom of love, not of power. A kingdom of giving and not just getting. A kingdom of serving, helping others. But they liked him. Children liked him. Little children crowd around him. Little children crowding all around him. The disciples one time said, get the kids away. Jesus said, you leave them alone. He got, I can see him getting stern. You leave them alone. In fact, you folks need to be like these children. He never said the children had to be adults to be Christians. He told a bunch of adults they have to be Christian, young children to be a Christian. Become like a child. Children liked him. Well, how, let me say, let me take a moment to say a word about Jesus' teaching. Uh, Jesus didn't practice what he preached. He preached what he practiced. Uh, You have to see him and get the feel of him before you can understand what he's saying because some things are taken out of context here or there. but, But you need to catch the spirit of Jesus in the New Testament, not just the words, because he, what he taught was something that he was didn't practice what he preached. He preached and practiced what he practiced. It was an outgrowth of who he was. Um, I want to point out this. Jesus never condemned anybody whom society already condemned. Let that sink in. Jesus never once condemned somebody that society had already condemned. He didn't condone what some people had done. They didn't condemn. He did not condemn obvious badness as much as he did obvious goodness. Scathing words of denunciation from the lips of Jesus were not directed nearly so often to those who had sinned and been found out as to those who had sinned but had not been found out. Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, he said, you religious folks. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. Well has Isaiah prophesied of you play actors saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's what Jesus said. And we who claim to be his followers need to let that spirit rub off on our spirits. We need to let that spirit that was in him, the Holy Spirit, begin to permeate our selfish spirits and turn us into worthy representatives of our living Lord. Well, why in the world did he get crucified if he was so terrific? Because that's the reason he came. 
Everybody else who ever came into the world came into the world to live except Jesus. He came to die. That's why he came. His is the only life that was ever lived backwards. Your history and my history runs from birth to death, not Jesus. His history runs from death to birth. What does that mean? It means this. The Bible says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. In other words, the cross was in the heart of God before he even created the universe. The heart of God was broken for the world way back before the world was ever created. And what happened millions of years later and 2,000 years ago was Jesus Christ physically, personally, objectively, and historically revealed the heart of God that had been there all along from the very beginning of time. He died first so that he would live forever so that all those of us who are born first never have to die because he swallowed up death in his victory. That's why he died, to show us the heart of God that had been giving love to the world from before it was ever created. Some man, some man. We'll call his name Jesus, for he will forgive his people and save his people from their sins. Tell you a story, told it long ago. Maybe some of you remember it. I'll never forget it. G.W. Rosenberry was a pastor many years ago, before the days of airplanes, but the days when people rode trains more often. And it was a Saturday, and this pastor was on a trip to go to preach. He was riding on a railroad car, and uh, he noticed a young man on the car with him that was sitting there by himself in an old cheap suitcase, and he was very nervous. And as time went on, he seemed to get more nervous, and the boy would get up walk around the car and and uh, after a while the preacher said son something seems to be bothering you I, I'm, I'm a pastor and a preacher you want to talk can I help in any way he said yeah maybe you can he said I my father and I had an argument three years ago we got mad at each other, and I got mad at him, and I left home. I said I'd never come back. He said, I want to come back. He said, a few days ago, I wrote my mother. I said, if it's okay with my dad and with you for me to come back, I, I want to be on the train on such and such a day. And the train goes right by my house, about 100 yards from my, my house, and told him it was okay for me to come home just put something white out on the clothesline or somewhere so I'd know it's okay as a symbol as a sign it's okay and the boy said you know, we're going to be getting there in a few moments and he said I'm just so nervous I don't know what to do he said I don't know whether it's going to be alright or not whether because if there's nothing white outside the house I'm just going to stay on this train and go where I don't know where and he said, you know, preacher, I can't even look. I'm so nervous about this. He said, we're going to round a curve up here in a minute, and we're going to pass my house about 100 yards off to the right, which is about a mile from the station. And I'm not going to look. Would you mind look, watching for, them, for me and telling me if there's anything outside my house? So the boy put his head down. The preacher said he was just so nervous, and the preacher said he was as nervous as that boy. Said the train made it around that corner, 
around that curve, and there was that farmhouse over there. And Pastor Rosenberry said, son, son, I want you to look. Open your eyes and look. And that boy opened his eyes and he looked. And there on that house, covering the roof of the house, on the, out on the trees, everywhere, all over that house, you couldn't even see the house for the white sheets that covered it. The trees were filled with it. The clothesline, white stuff all over the house. The preacher said he didn't wait till the train stopped at the station. That boy was on his way home, running down to the house that was covered with a sign saying, come home. Now I have a word for you. The white sheets are out on the everlasting hills. You can come home. He's come to forgive us of our sins. Though they be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Because his name is Jesus, and he came to save us from our sins. Come on home. Trust Christ as your Savior. Come join his church and help us put the white sheets of God's grace and forgiveness out in this community. Let's stand and sing.